Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author David Alexander Baker, who is the Lost Continent, Coral Reef Conservation and Restoration in the Age of Extinction, is being published by Imagine, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Would you start us off with an excerpt from the book, please? Uh, Yes, I'd like to. Uh, Thanks so much. The paleontologist stepped out of a green SUV with large Jurassic Park logos on the doors and a sticker featuring a T-Rex happily devouring a nuclear family on the back window. The vehicle looked like a prop from the popular films. People smile when I drive up, she said. I supposed it's healthy to have a sense of humor when you study mass extinctions for a living. In boots and cowboy hat, a white bandana around her neck, a white shirt to ward off the baking heat not quite hiding colorful tattoos, and clutching a rock hammer, Montana Hodges embodied her profession in a way that few people do. Even her name had the ring of paleontology about it. And like any good character, she even came with a sidekick. Her dad, Chris, ambled around the side of the truck, wearing a floppy, wide-brimmed hat and clutching a pair of hiking poles for balance on the uneven terrain. He was already hungrily scanning the sides of the canyon for his next geological fix. Montana teaches geology at Sierra Nevada College, writes books about rock hunting and combs the landscapes of the Southwest, Mexico, and Alaska in search of Jurassic corals. Chris, a physicist by training and a rock hound by passion, plays the role of field tech for his daughter and has even been credited on her research papers. They share a lifelong passion for things etched into stone and baked into rubble, which they can read like the runes of an ancient language. Which way should we head up the ridge, Monty? Chris asked. It had been years since they were at this spot and had discovered corals together. They were both eager to return to the site. Montana checked the GPS on her phone and pointed up a rocky draw. I think it's this way. And with that, I followed the pair up into New York Canyon. Thank you. So without uh, leaving our audience hanging too much, uh, before you put that passage in the sort of larger context of the book, can you just share a little bit about what happened when you yourself entered New York Canyon? Well, yes. So we... um... We hiked quite a ways uh, up in the heat and in the dust and rocks, and and we found a a collection of fossils that had been washed down and spilled over the edge of the ridge. And in that collection of fossils, we found corals from about 200 million years ago. And these were Jurassic corals that were the first inklings of coral recovery after a huge extinction event wiped out the reefs that were very similar to what we had today. So this was the first sign of corals recovering after millions of years of being absent from the fossil record. And talk about how this segment uh, or why you chose this segment to introduce your book to to our audience. Well, I I think when uh, folks think of coral reefs, they think of Hawaii or Florida or the Caribbean or South Pacific and and blue tropical oceans, but um, really the book is about what corals mean to us uh, at this time on our planet, and by looking back into the fossil record and seeing what happened to corals in the past, we can kind of see where corals could be heading if we don't um, kind of address some of the issues that we're facing, which is it was mainly burning lots of carbon and changing um, 
the, the carbon content of the atmosphere and of the oceans, making them more acidic. So let's take a step back. At one point in your book, you wrote, uh, quote, a chance assignment and a glimpse of a coral reef out of an airplane window changed the trajectory of my life, unquote. Yeah. I, so for, um, for a living, for uh, my day job, I'm a, a science communicator and a visual storyteller, and I produce um, documentary films, educational films. Uh, about natural resource issues. And um, we I don't always pick the assignments. They kind of come up as by chance. And I, I had the opportunity to work on a project about coral reefs and coral research. And this was back in 2014, right before a series of very unprecedented mass bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef. When we got this assignment for this project, uh, I normally work with a camera in all different types of um, habitats. Um, but our researcher who was on the grant with us, uh, notified us that she'd gotten the award and that a portion of the funds was, would be dedicated to making a film. And she said, Oh, by the way, um, you're going to need to be a, a certified science diver. I had never gone diving before that point, but it's, it was a process that we went through in about three or four months. My partner on the film project, Justin Smith and I. And we went from taking recreational dive classes to all the way um, through the science dive course, which requires uh, performing difficult tasks underwater. Um, so it was quite a quite an operation. And the thing that was most challenging is that we did this in the winter. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so we trained in Puget Sound, which was very cold. We were using rental gear, and I really didn't enjoy diving at all, and I, I couldn't even understand why people would do that for a hobby. But then once we went to the coral habitat and started diving there for the film project in this tropical seas, I completely understood what the fascination with diving was all about. So I was uh, transformed from a non-diver into an aficionado of the activity in, in, in pretty short order. So um, I was starting to learn about corals just as the world was losing coral reefs in a very big way on a mass scale. So I've been following the story ever since, uh, and it's a, a daily drip in the news of, of dire um, predictions and then a few glimpses of hope. And I wanted to delve into that in this book and, and balance sort of the hope and desperation that these ecosystems are facing. So, David, uh, was there something from all your studies about corals that surprised you the most? Yeah, well, I th corals are surprising habitats um, just to begin with. You're, you're, you're immersing yourself in this marine world after being a sort of a terrestrial being for so long. So out of the corner of your eye, or they're a strange animal, a, a, a worm that looks like a birthday ribbon or maybe a glimpse of a shark. So they're, they're always surprising you. But I think there was one reef in particular that surprised me the most, which was um, a, a coral reef called Varadero, which is at the mouth of Cartagena Bay in Colombia, South America. And it was a coral reef that was recently discovered by science. Um, local fishing communities knew it was there. But it is thriving in an area that's very polluted that is a spot where few people, particularly scientists, would expect to find a coral reef. So submerging through the murky cap of water onto this reef uh, in this busy industrial harbor was probably the most surprising thing that I saw in my travels exploring reefs. 
And what is the explanation, if it's known, as to how a reef could flourish in polluted waters, given that the layperson would think that those would not go together, that there's a lot of pollution that coral reef, just like other marine life, would be uh, killed off or diminished in population? Yeah, and and it's not just lay people. The I met the scientist who literally wrote the book on Colombian corals, and he didn't even stop there to look uh, in the first draft of his book. So, so yeah, there are several um, theories and and guesses, maybe even at this point, as to why this reef is doing so well. For one thing, humans uh, have been there in that spot for five hundred years, and they dredged this canal. Uh, 500 years ago that's spilling all of the sediment into the area. So these corals have had 500 years to adapt to the humans being there. So that's one thing is that there's been time. Uh, something else is that the, um, the sedimentation and cloudy water seems to stay on the surface layer the first couple of meters. And then it clears up below, and so there's something with the oceanography of the area and the currents that keep that pollution at the top. And it actually... Um, the corals are very shallow, but they have growth forms like corals that live much deeper. So it could be that this cap of cloudy water is blocking some of the sunlight uh, and making these corals think that they're at a deeper depth, and that somehow allowed them to survive. And so those are some of the things that scientists are looking at and trying to study and figure out. And that's why that reef in particular is so important to to save. And uh, one thing about that reef is that the um, there are plans to do some dredging of a new shipping canal in the area. So hopefully that's something that the government in Colombia recognizes as a as a, a, a valuable natural resource that should be explored and protected and rather than developed. I was interested that on the back of the book, there's a quote from Ben Goldfarb, the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, because I recently read another book about beavers and the notion of these animals sort of changing ecosystems, changing the environment in a way that benefits a whole wide range of, uh, of other living things, you know, reminded me of, of, of the value of coral reefs and not just sustaining their own lives, but so much of marine life. Can you talk a little bit about uh, for want of a better term, the sort of cascading effect in, on the marine world when a coral reef dies off. So some of the um, facts and, and stats about coral reefs is that 25% of all marine species spend at least a portion of their life cycle on, on coral reefs, and they only take up 0.1% of the Earth's surface. So they have this outsized role in sheltering animals. They provide shelter for juvenile fish. And they also exist in areas where there's very clear water, typically, unlike that reef that I mentioned in Varadero. And these are the deserts of the ocean. There's not a lot of nutrients there. There's not a lot of food kind of floating around in the water column. And corals build in these deserts, um, and they attract fish and plants, animals, invertebrates, and they create ecosystems um, by providing the shelter and the structure and they're able to do this by, through the photosynthesis of their partner plants that live inside them. So, so basically, they build habitat in much the same way that um, old-growth trees build habitat in a forest or in the rainforest. And they create habitat for so many species, and including humans. So a half a billion people 
in the world get their only daily protein from a coral reef and the fish that live there. So, so they really play an outsized role for certainly for their size um, and the amount of uh, habitat that they take up. And, and that sort of leads into what I was going to ask you next, which you've partially answered, which is to talk about the ways in which the survival of coral reefs directly impacts people. Yeah, they um, they provide ecosystem services to humans. Um, I mentioned the protein and food um, by creating a thriving habitat for fish in a place where fish wouldn't ordinarily live. But they also provide shore protection uh, for areas uh, to protect coastal communities from storm energy. And they regrow, typically, if a, a storm comes, strong waves or a hurricane, under natural conditions destroy some of the coral, the coral can slowly rebuild. Uh, but part of what's happening in term is stor- storms are getting stronger, waves are getting stronger, um, warming events or bleaching events are getting strong- stronger, and that uh, prevents some of these ecosystem services from taking place. Uh, the other services they provide are um, drug discovery. So most of the drugs that we use are, are based on natural products and they have this unexplored landscape and this unlimited potential to provide human medicines. Um, So there are a lot of services that we um, as humans um, get from these animals. I believe in the first part of our conversation, David, you referred to sort of being a visual storyteller or primarily a visual storyteller. What were you able to do in prose form in this book that you weren't able to do, for example, in the, in the film that you made about coral reefs, uh, saving Atlantis? Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. And I moved back and forth between those forms. I started off, uh, as a lit English major and, and a writer, uh, and then moved into the film world. But, you know, it, it's really about the time that you can spend with a film, a 90 minute film. There's a lot that's left on the cutting room floor. So there are a lot of little side channels, and additional information, interviews, characters that had to have to be cut out of that format, and a, and a book allowed me to re, reimagine those, uh, play around with the with the order, and then dig deeper um, and you follow different threads that we weren't able to follow on the in the film. And sometimes it's the science, you know, some of the details of the science or or parts of the history that you can really delve into into prose in a way that you can't uh, when you're working with a time based medium. And you just sort of referred to sort of additional characters or people you could touch upon in the book. Are there any who sort of really stand out as particularly memorable? You, you know, you, your excerpt dealt with a, a paleontologist and her father. I'm wondering if there are one or two people who you met during the course of your, your research and explorations who just really made such a vivid impression on you that you'd like to talk about them a little bit with our audience. Uh, for sure. Yeah. One, um, person who I had the good uh, fortune of interviewing several times, um, both for the film and and for uh, prose pieces, was Ruth Gates, who is the head of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and and a brilliant coral researcher, and also somebody who is breaking ground and trying new things. She was working with breeding corals uh, to be resistant to climate change and and to pressures, human pressures. And it was really controversial. There is a school of thought that says, hey, no, we need to address what we're doing to the planet uh, before we start engineering nature. So anytime you start to 
talk about genetic engineering and putting these things into a wild place like the ocean, there's unpredictable outcomes. But she was a proponent of, hey, we need to do whatever it takes. Humans are um, creative and ingenious species. So we need to, um, to address this problem with all the tools that we have available. And it was really uh, the force of her vision and, and, and the force of her will, really, that can push this technology forward. And now um, she unfortunately passed away several years ago. But there is a, a flourishing pursuit of uh, breeding corals specifically for different areas and to be resistant to different pressures that that's taking off right now. What remains to be seen is if that's enough, if that's not too little, too late. But um, but I think that's something her uh, faith in humans and what we can do was something that was very hopeful for me. Another uh, pair of characters were um, two scientists I met in Florida who um, were working on disease prevention uh, by using a paste, an antibiotic paste, to counteract this devastating disease that's been marching down the Florida Keys uh, and wiping out coral reefs wholesale in an area, part of the world, where there aren't a lot of reefs remaining. Um, and just their their hope and... Um, and determination, they'd spend 100 to 150 days a year uh, on the water. A lot of times, just the two of them in a boat with a, um, a tube. It's sort of like a caulking gun of, of this antibiotic paste, individually treating corals one at a time to try and save them from the march of this disease and meeting with quite a bit of success. So um, if we could clone... The, those two researchers and maybe have 20 boats going out, they really believe that they could stop that disease in its tracks. So, so there are people that just refuse to give up no matter what the odds. And I, I think that's what was most memorable about um, the folks that I met while I was researching the book. So the period of time that's passed since uh, global warming has increased so exponentially to put us at the state we are now of, of confronting catastrophic climate change. It's obviously a shorter time span than the 500 years you referred to when you talked about the adaptations at the Veradero Reef. Uh, is there any indication that corals anywhere in the world are evolving or adapting on their own in a way that's enabling them or might enable them to survive? Well, that's one of the hope spots that I've seen is that corals are resilient. Um, a lot of times they will come back in places where they're not expected to. And I think the, the reef of Varadero is the best example by far of, of that type of a place. Now, um, there have been some news accounts just recently about how there has been record growth on the Great Barrier of Reef after some several mass bleaching events. Now, um, that's a hopeful sign, but the types of corals that are regrowing and coming back are not necessarily the big mounding reef building corals that are more the branching delicate corals, which are most likely to get wiped out in future events. So, so reefs are changing and evolving regardless, but they do show resilience and show the capability if we just leave them alone. If we do our part, they have shown over and over again that they will do their part and start to adapt and rebuild, but we really, the um, we're in car in control. We're in charge of the pressures. Uh, we're burning the carbon. We are dredging reefs. 
Um, we are polluting the, the oceans and, and, and causing algae to grow and choke out reefs. So, so we have our fingers on the button and we can control a lot. We're causing the problems. So if we stop that, they, they definitely give us hope by uh, showing their resilience and, and their ability to come back. So let's connect that with a question that I imagine our listeners have, which is what can the average person listening to this podcast, if there is such a creature, do or should be doing or think about doing that would help with this significant portion of uh, the climate uh, change disaster? Yeah, well, climate change is the, the big the biggest pressure. Um, overfishing is a pressure. I mentioned pollution and, and sometimes just coastal development in general. All of these things can affect reefs negatively. But climate change is the big one because it's changing the temperature of the water. Corals live close to their thermal threshold and they can't move. They're fixed to rock. So addressing climate change is the most important thing. And there are a lot of everyday activities that everybody has heard about ad nauseum probably, but, you know, riding your bike, changing to electric vehicles, eating lower on the food chain, which means eat more plants than meat. And if you do some of the, these things with walking and eating more of a plant-based diet and the more occasional meat than every day, um, you'll be healthier as a person. So that's a positive side effect. Uh, but really, uh, it takes institutional change at the level of large organizations and governments. So uh, politically um, supporting people who have plans to address climate change, listening to scientists who advise courses of action to address climate change. It really needs to be at a, at a political level because these individual things are great, but really it has to be society changing as a whole. And that's going to be a, a, a difficult, painful, and tedious process. But um, I think we're starting to move in that direction, uh, but we need to move a lot faster. So thank you for that. I'm wondering if you can leave our listeners with sort of an explication of your basis for being hopeful despite, you know, the horrific statistics about the percentage of reefs that have gone away. What gives you hope now for the future and the possibility of our turning things around? Well, I think, I think there are two things is that there are still a lot of coral reefs left. When I first started researching coral reefs, uh, a statistic I heard a lot um, was 40% have been lost. And now I hear 60%. Now that's just in a decade and a half. So, um, so there, we're losing them fast, but there's still a lot out there. And that gives me hope every time I dive on a reef or go snorkeling in a reef or take somebody who's never been to a reef, to a reef, I, I feel hope. And when I see people light up or become fascinated with this habitat or get really curious or interested in it, that's hopeful as well. And then just the people that I've met from scientists, indigenous community members, conservationists. There are a whole lot of people out there who um, intellectually might think, hey, coral reefs are lost. There's nothing we can do. But every day they get up and they go out there and they work on their small piece of the puzzle. So I think that we can reach a tipping point if enough people adopt that attitude that, that they can be a part of a solution. So, so um, without hope, it would be hard to get up in the morning, and I still see a lot of it out there, uh, but that doesn't undercut how serious the situation is. Well, thank you. Thanks for your time today, David, and thank you, listeners. 
The book again is The Lost Continent, Coral Reef Conservation and Restoration the Age of Extinction by David Alexander Baker, published by Imagine. Thanks for your time today and please join us again soon for the next LitCast. <laughs>